so it's an opportunity also to introduce our uh, first presenter, uh, Professor Jeffrey Myron. He's a superstar, rock star teacher at Harvard University, very popular with the students. And he's also dedicated his life not only to teaching economics, to his important academic research, and he is a real a global expert on the economics of prohibition and has written extensively on that, but also has taken the time to articulate in a high-level intellectual atmosphere the ideas of liberty and looking at it from with the eyes of a serious social scientist. So at exactly 9 o'clock, Jeff. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Um, so my talk today, as the title suggests, is going to be about what I call consequential libertarianism. It's a particular version of libertarianism. Like all versions, it's going to advocate for small government, okay? very small government. Let's see. Let's see if I can get this. There we go. Okay. I'm going to advocate for small government, but in a very specific way that might seem very familiar and natural to some of you, might seem very different and awkward uh, to others because it's somewhat different than the rights-based or philosophical uh, approach to libertarian. At least it appears to be so. I'm going to argue a little bit that it's really uh, very much the same thing. Okay? Um, so I'm basically going to try to explain this consequentialist approach to libertarianism and discuss its implications. Now. A couple other things by way of introduction before I get into details. Am I trying to explain or am I trying to persuade? Well, of course, at some level, I'm trying to persuade you of the libertarian conclusions, given how much I believe and given how much time and energy I put into thinking about libertarianism. It couldn't be otherwise. But I'll certainly regard it as a victory if I can explain the consequentialist perspective clearly, uh, partially because I think it's a useful thing to know about and understand, regardless of your own uh, actual conclusions, but also because I'm pretty confident that if I explain it well, you'll end up being persuaded, and so I can sort of have my cake and eat it too. The second thing I want to say, just by way of general background, okay, sorry, is that a key message of libertarianism, consequentialist view, the philosophical view, whatever. A key message that I think should always be kept in mind is its consistency. Unlike sort of any other ism, any other perspective on government policy, libertarianism advocates for small government across the board, across all policies. Not necessarily absolutely zero government in every single area, but certainly very small and much smaller than we currently have. Libertarian view is consistent in that it's skeptical of proposals from the left and the right or, or anywhere else. It always takes a critical eye and says, well, exactly why is that policy a good policy? I need to be convinced. Okay? Similarly, or said differently, we apply this skeptical view, we apply the liberty perspective or the consequentialist perspective to economic policy, social policy, foreign policies, okay? and that makes libertarianism unique and it makes it consistent in a way that I find incredibly appealing. I think many people find appealing. Um, and so it's something that will come up over and over again in my discussion. And last by, sorry, clicker wants to jump ahead. Clicker's button is stuck or something. Um, by way of uh, background, tell you a little bit about how I got 
Never mind the PowerPoint. I got to be a libertarian. So I was raised by diehard sort of lefties who supported every Democratic candidate, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, worked for Abner Mikva. Some of you don't know, but he was a pretty well-known Chicago congressman, very, very far left. So I, of course, sort of drank that Kool-Aid growing up. Um, but something about it always sort of rubbed me the wrong way. And partway through that growing up, going through the Vietnam War, going through the Nixon, Watergate, and all that, my father started to be a little bit more skeptical, and some of that rubbed off on me. And I got to college and started taking economics. And economics, at least with respect to strictly economics policies, clearly says, oh, there's a reason why less government is better. Okay? Laissez-faire has some good properties. So that planted another seed. And then later on, after I was already a professor, got and had been studying macroeconomics for most of my career, someone started talking to me about drug policy, and I got interested in the question of drug legalization, and ended up pretty much ending my interest in macroeconomics and focused instead on studying, doing research on, writing about, advocating for drug legalization. About five years into that, one of my friends said to me, he said, you know, I really appreciate your view on drugs. You're totally right. Our current policy is completely idiotic. But you're, you're not one of those nuts who also thinks that guns should be legal, are you? <laughs> so I honestly had not spent that much time thinking about that particular question up until that point. And I thought for a few seconds, said, well, I guess I am one of those nuts because all the arguments for keeping drugs legal apply similarly, with slight nuances, to keeping guns legal. So if we're going to be consistent, we should be in favor of both legal crack cocaine and legal submachine guns, okay? And that's the, log that's the logical position. So my friend was somewhat disappointed with me, but that was sort of prompted me to then think much more consistently, how can one be consistent across all sets of policies, including lots that feel good? And so you end up being a bit of a pariah if you take a stand against redistributing income or government health care, things like that, certainly in academia. But... Uh, over time, I thought about that and have come to conclusions that I'll discuss with you today. So quick outline. I'm going to explain what I mean by consequential libertarianism. <laughs> this clicker really wants to go, me to go faster for some reason. Um, <laughs> then I will give you an outline of what I'll call libertarian land. I'll talk about what policies are implied by this consequentialist perspective without having yet sort of told you why you should find that approach convincing. I think it's useful to see where we're going to go before I go through the, all the details of how we get there. And then this morning, I'll give part of the defense of why the consequential perspective should persuade you that small government is almost always better uh, than bigger government. Um, and that comes down to economics, so we'll discuss that uh, in some detail. And I'll go through some examples of a consequentialist perspective. Then this afternoon, uh, I think in the 3, 3.15 session, okay, I will go into other reasons why the consequentialist perspective, <laughs> clicker still doesn't like me, um, <laughs> is convincing. Um, and uh, that will get us into talking about how do we choose policies? Do we choose policies based on whether they're good for economic efficiency, whether they're good for justice, whether they're good for liberty, or what? Are there, are there sort of different implications of those different perspectives uh, or not? Um, and that will sort of wrap up my argument for why small government uh, is best. Okay, so very basically, libertarianism comes in very, very broad brush term, being somewhat unfair to lots of people. Okay? It comes in two main flavors, which we'll call philosophical and consequential. The philosophical perspective says individuals have rights, usually referred to as natural rights, 
and it says policy should not infringe those rights, that the single most important or the only goal for policy should be to avoid infringing on natural rights. Of course, almost any policy you can think of does infringe on someone's rights, maybe not to exactly the same degree, maybe some cases a lot of people's rights, in other cases only a few people's rights, maybe different aspects of people's rights depending on the policy, but any policy is going to have to infringe someone's rights because it's going to force people to do some things that they didn't want to do otherwise or wouldn't have done otherwise. Okay? So it follows quite straightforwardly then from the philosophical approach. Again, I'm being very, very unfair, way oversimplifying, but in broad brush terms, almost all policies, or if not all policies, are inadmissible or undesirable because all policies infringe on people's natural rights. Okay? The consequential perspective, okay, it's, wrong here. Consequential perspective okay, says when we're thinking about policies that people have proposed to deal with poverty, to deal with health care, to deal with um, misuse of drugs, to deal with foreign policy issues or whatever, we should ask a whole bunch of questions to try to figure out what we think. We should first ask what exactly Okay, is the problem this is intervention supposed to fix? If you don't have a clear idea of what you're aiming at, you're unlikely to hit your target. We should ask whether the problem is large or small. Okay, if you don't have a clear sense of whether it's a big or large problem, you can't easily design a reasonable response. And maybe small problems you shouldn't try to fix at all because it's just impossible to imagine that any policy is perfect itself. So a small problem, uh, the treatment is going to be worse than the disease for sure. We should ask whether private responses markets and other private mechanisms can ameliorate this problem or might ameliorate it in future, even if they haven't done so yet. If you're going to propose an intervention, if you really think there's a problem that private forces won't address well, you should ask not just should we do this particular intervention, but what are all the kinds of interventions you could consider? Because there might be a range of negative consequences from different kinds of interventions, so we should focus on the one that seems to generate fewest adverse consequences while trying to address the problem. Then, of course, we have to talk about what the costs are. We have to talk about whether this policy will actually reduce the thing it's trying to reduce or fix the thing it's trying to fix. It's one thing to say drugs are bad and therefore we should prohibit them. You should also ask, does prohibition reduce drug use? If it doesn't, then you're done discussing whether drugs are good, bad, or indifferent because the policy is just not accomplishing its stated goal. And every policy has direct costs for expenditure, all for the people who are employed to implement and enforce the policy and so on. And perhaps most importantly, in some ways summing up uh, consequential libertarianism in two words, almost all policies have a broad range of unintended consequences okay, that you should think about and want to know about before you're convinced that intervening is better than not intervening. Okay, so consequential libertarianism then says that we should intervene if, but only if, the consequences from intervention appear to be better than the consequences from laissez-faire, from not intervening. Okay? And similarly, if there's two possible ways you could intervene, you should choose the one that has the best set of consequences. Okay? Now, what I've said so far okay, is going to, should seem to you to have sort of two characteristics. First, okay, so this is just the arrows up and down. Okay, okay, that seems to work better. So first reaction to what I've said, consequential libertarianism says be rational, be calm, think about all the effects of particular interventions, and then choose the best policy, which might be laissez-faire, okay? not intervening at all. 
So first, that just sounds like cost-benefit analysis, or it just sounds like standard economics. And indeed, that's exactly what it is, except that in the consequential approaches, in the consequentialist approaches I advocated, we consider a broad range of costs and benefits. We consider the fact that policies might change social norms in ways that are not desirable. If you provide for a welfare state that helps people who, that allows people to live off the dole, that might change the attitudes more generally about whether it's acceptable to live off the dole and cause more people to want to live off the dole. You should worry about those kinds of consequences. Okay, when you're thinking about intervening, you should worry that policy interventions might change respect for the law. If you prohibit something that everybody keeps using anyway, okay, that's a consequence we should take into account. But that caveat there, okay, what I'm saying in terms of doing things consequentially is just a broad view of cost-benefit analysis or standard economics. Now, having said that, your next reaction is probably when you look at cost-benefit analyses that various people have done on all sorts of things, should Boston build a new stadium for the Patriots to keep them from going to Hartford and things like that, you get a huge range of conclusions. Okay? You get one person, one consulting firm's analysis that says, absolutely, it'll bring tons of revenue to the state, another person's analysis that says it won't. So saying we should do cost-benefit to choose policies is clearly not going to settle the issue at all. Okay? It doesn't lead everyone to the same conclusions for two reasons. First, there's always room for legitimate scientific disagreement. Okay? We could all say we want to think about whether drug prohibition reduces drug use as part of evaluating whether drug prohibition is a good policy. But how do you do that? You would like to be able to do that by having a whole bunch of economies randomly assigning some of them to adopt drug prohibition and the others not, let them go for 50 years, and then measure drug use in the countries with and without okay, drug prohibition can't do that in economics. We don't have a parallel universe in which Ben Bernanke was not the Fed chair and we never adopted the TARP okay, in response to the financial crisis. We don't do experiments. So all social science evidence has huge uncertainty, has huge sort of noise about it. So reasonable people are going to disagree to some extent about whether a minimum wage reduces employment a little bit, a moderate amount, a lot. Okay. So that's one reason cost-benefit is going to be incomplete. Okay. Secondly, and you might think more importantly, although I'll argue at the end that this is not the case, but you might think different people have just totally different values. And given they have different values or stated differently, they put different weights on various outcomes, then they're going to come to different conclusions about which policies are good, even if they totally agree on all the consequences. So again, imagine that we did have great evidence on whether drug prohibition reduces drug use. And we found it reduces it by 20%. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? To standard economics, okay, and most libertarians, I assume, that's a bad thing. We've prevented those 20% of the possible users from being able to use cocaine, heroin, marijuana legally. We've interfered with their rights. We've reduced their utility, whatever, reduced their happiness, however you want to describe it. That reduction is a negative. It's a cost to prohibition. But to many other people, obviously much of our current society, all the drug prohibitionists, reducing drug use is a good thing. So if you find that there's some reduction from drug prohibition, that's a benefit as opposed to a cost. So that might make you think okay, that it's impossible to ever settle anything with cost benefit. You might think that consequential libertarianism just doesn't have any bite. It's a nice sounding framework because it sounds calm and rational, but it doesn't tell us what the conclusion should be at all. What I'm going to argue is the following. It's the second part of the consequentialist perspective, okay, which says that um, for reasonable, and of course, 
that's a loaded word, reasonable, but you'll see what I mean later. For reasonable assessments and values, okay, reasonable views about what the effects are and reasonable views about different ways of weighting all those different consequences, most people are going to agree, once they look at all the possibilities, they look at the whole analysis, that the negatives of most interventions outweigh the positives, okay, and therefore, small government is usually better. Now, clearly, in making that claim, okay, that's a strong claim. Okay? I'm not just saying, let's be calm. I'm saying, if you do it calmly, you're going to conclude that the huge amount of government that the United States and most countries have is actually ill-advised. So that means a lot of people have been wrong, misguided, okay, supporting a lot of bad things for a long time. So that's one way in which it's a really strong conclusion. But I'm also suggesting that even though people might be like super in favor of redistribution or super in favor of justice somehow defined or equity somehow defined, and other people are only about efficiency, let's just maximize GDP, okay, never mind who ends up getting that GDP. All those people should still agree on what the right policies are despite those enormous difference in values. Okay? And therefore, they should all agree that small government is much better. Now, how small? Okay? I would say we should be removing, undoing, repealing, et cetera, all the mandates, taxes, et cetera, et cetera, that we've adopted since the 90s, and I mean the 1790s. Okay? So <laughs> I, I could tell there was a slight, there's a slight, like, what? He only wants to go back to the 90s? That's not very good. But, I, I do think it's useful to think about what if we had the kind of level of government that the U.S. had just after we adopted the Constitution and so on. Okay, so um, if I can ask a question. This time thing here doesn't, it says amount of elapsed time, but it doesn't tell me what time it is. Okay, um, now I have to do, now you're forcing me to do subtraction. Um, so, okay. Thank you. All right. Um, next step, I want to describe what government looks like in libertarian land. Um, I haven't yet sort of convinced you that when we do this consequential analysis for some specific policies that it leads you to small government, but I think it's useful to see where we're going, and then we'll talk the rest of today and uh, this afternoon, the rest of this morning and this afternoon about why it's good. So this first few slides are just, the next few slides are just to give you a sense of the size of government in the U.S. and elsewhere and of how that size has changed. So this shows you government expenditure as a percent of GDP. The reddish line is the federal government. That's sort of interesting because it's really, really small for a large fraction of our history until approximately sort of 1930, okay, except for a few huge spikes. Those spikes are wars, the Civil War and then World War I. Then the Great Depression, okay, which is roughly you know, between the second and the third huge spikes, okay, we get what at the time was a big increase in peacetime spending, but then World War II comes along, and there's an enormous spike, almost all of which is defense. But then the level never goes back down to the pre-Depression or pre-World War II levels. We see a relatively high level of government spending uh, to GDP of about 20% on average in the post-war period. Okay? State and local spending increases a lot over the post-war period, and so the overall trend okay, is clearly for much, much bigger government. So, the point of that picture is just to say things are definitely different. We used to have a really tiny government okay, in the U.S., and that is no, certainly no longer the case. Okay? This is sort of a flip side of that same story. This gives you federal government receipts, so roughly tax revenue, a few other miscellaneous items. Again, it's very small 
okay, until approximately World War II. And World War II, taxes are raised a lot to help pay for the war, and it stays high. Okay, for, a, for the post-war period after that, again, somewhere in the 15 to 20% for federal taxes. Overall taxes, uh, as a fraction of the economy, are now averaging roughly 30% uh, in the U.S. Okay? And this is still just a different way of seeing that government has expanded, but in a particular way. There's one additional point. This shows you employment. You can see that federal employment, this only goes back to 1930, has actually been declining over time okay, since World War II. Okay, since we laid off all the soldiers, didn't rehire all the soldiers from World War II, and then some small blips for Korea and for Vietnam, the trend in federal employment is actually down. Maybe not what you would guess, because we all think that the federal government has been getting bigger and bigger and more intrusive. Okay? And if you look at the growth in uh, government employment, it's almost all coming from state and local employees, okay? so teachers, especially in the first half of the post-war period. Okay? So what's going on there? How is it that government is getting so big okay, if they're not employing that many more people? Well. We'll see it later. It's because we're spending money okay, now on Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. It only takes a few people to write a zillions of dollars worth of checks. You don't need lots of employment. You can still have huge amounts of expenditure regardless. Just to place the U.S. in perspective, this is taxes as a share of GDP in the U.S. So you can see that we're actually relatively light, 27.3% in the year uh, of this chart in 2008. The OECD average was 36%. And a bunch of the rich countries, if you look at the details, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, they're all well above the OECD average. It's mainly the uh, lower income countries that are down there sort of toward the US. And in terms of uh, government expenditure, the U.S. is, again, sort of lower than the average, although not super low. Okay, we're a few, if you, you can see, we're next to Canada, a little bit above, just above Luxembourg. So we're to the right of the red line, sort of midway between the end and the, and the middle. So again, lots of countries are spending lots of money, government money, in the extreme cases of Denmark, government expenditure is 60% of GDP. So that's to give you one sort of perspective on the size of government. And now let's talk about what it would be like in libertarian land. So in libertarian land, there's only one significant federal government policies. It's national defense. Okay? In terms of dollars, persons employed, et cetera, it would swamp everything else. Now, as we'll discuss later, federal government in libertarian, sorry, national defense in libertarian land would still be much, much smaller than it is now. But there would be national defense, and that would be pretty much the sole federal government per, uh, function. Few other miscellaneous things. If you're going to do some expenditure, you have to raise some revenue, so you collect some taxes. There are a few crimes that are inherently federal crimes, like treason, piracy. Plausibly, we might staff some embassies and consulates around the world, negotiate treaties, and possibly, although libertarians are fairly divided on this, uh, have an office that enforces patents, copyright, and things like that. So if you think about what that means in terms of current federal government departments to eliminate, Libertarian land, we'd have no ag, no commerce, education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? The ones you would plausibly keep, or at least keep much smaller versions of, because they have to do with things that are inherently reasonable things for a federal government, would be defense, justice, state, and treasury. Okay? All of those do tons of things that libertarians would eliminate, but there are some functions there we would keep. Um, as an aside, there's this 
there was this debate back in 2012 in which Rick Perry had his oops moment where he's asked for the three federal cabinet departments he would eliminate. And turns out he was taking some very strong cold medications at the time for some sort of infection or something. So should, should maybe cut him a break on that. Okay? And I guarantee you when the lights are on and you're in front of a microphone, it's harder to keep your wits about you than you might think. <laughs> Nevertheless, I think the person who blew it the most was Ron Paul. When, that, when Ron Paul was asked which three departments would he eliminate, he should have said, what, I only get to eliminate three? That would have been a much more convincing line um, and would have gotten him a much better laugh because maybe Ron Paul, I think, would agree with pretty much the list that's up there. Okay, just illustrating this point a little further, all these government agencies, okay? Some of you might not even know, sorry, what each of these is. I might have forgotten one or two myself. And this is a teeny subset of the alphabet soup of government agencies that regulate sort of all manner of different parts of the economy. None of those exist in libertarian limits. State government is not quite as radically smaller, but still smaller. There would be a um, criminal justice system that in many ways operates similarly to now, okay, except that a Tons of things which are crimes now, like those against drugs, prostitution, gambling, would not exist. And there may be or a few other state government activities. Libertarians are less dogmatic about government intervention at the state or the local level. So local fire protection, a lot of libertarians, government-provided local fire protection, libertarians could sort of live with. Some would advocate for some degree of poverty alleviation via negative income tax. Maybe some level of subsidy for education if it's done properly via vouchers certainly taking care of roads and other infrastructure infrastructure are plausible. Um, finally, another way to think about libertarian land versus current policies to ask what would be legal or not. Okay? At the federal level, there should basically be no criminal law. The only exceptions are the ones I've mentioned, tax, fraud, treason, a couple of others. Okay? At the state level, of course, there's still the standard laws against murder, assault, rape, robbery, and so on, but not against drugs, gambling, weapons, so on and so forth. Maybe you would also, I think many libertarians would advocate much less government enforcement of laws against white collar crimes like fraud or embezzlement. Those can be handled uh, better through private mechanisms. And similarly, okay, all the different ways that governments regulate are not there in libertarian land. Again, I put this up to remind you how incredibly involved the government is in every aspect of people's lives. There is regulation of, with respect to the environment, with respect to labor markets, because of unions, competition by antitrust, gun control laws, building codes, energy efficiency standards, and billions and billions of, of additional things. Okay, so all of that is gone in the kind of economy that I think we would get if we thoughtfully applied consequential libertarianism. Okay? So here's what we've done so far. Explain what it is. Describe what what economy would look like, the country would look like, if we applied those principles. But I haven't really explained why it's right. Okay, so now we're going to talk about economics. So what is economics? Okay. Simplest definition is it's a combination of one fact and one assumption. Okay. The fact is that resources are scarce. Okay, two plus two is four. Okay, just the fact that some politicians wants two plus two to be seven can't happen. It's four. So at any moment in time, there's a finite amount of resources to be allocated. You can't do anything about that. You have to live with that constraint. You have maximum amount you can produce over time. So okay, you can't just say we're going to have enough tomorrow to pay for all the expenditure we want today. There are constraints. 
And that means that every decision, whether the decisions are smart, stupid, rational, or not, all of those decisions have to face those constraints. Then, you know, less sort of absolutely, and this is now an assumption rather than a fact, okay, economics assumes that people have goals and they pursue their goals as best they can. Now, I stated that sort of carefully because frequently you see the statement that economists assume everybody's super hyper-rational and maximizing their utility or their profits or whatever all the time. Okay? Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe some people have lots of goals besides profits or utility. Maybe they're altruistic. Maybe some firms want to maximize sales or social welfare or the likelihood they get invited to sit in Bob Kraft's skybox at the Patriots games or whatever. Okay? People have all sorts of goals. There's nothing in libertarianism or economics that says people couldn't have a huge range of different kinds of goals. But it says, given their goals, they're going to do some purposeful things to try to accomplish their goals, okay? subject to the constraints that they face. So what that tells us is that people are doing their best to achieve their objectives given the constraints. And therefore, if the constraints change, people's behavior will change. If you're told you have to make the best choices of pizza and donuts, given $10, and now someone says you have $20, you can make a different decision. If you're told that the price of something is $10, and now the price is only $2, okay, you may make a different decision because the constraints you face have changed. So people's behavior responds to the constraints. Okay? Standard way economists describe that is incentives matter, or people respond to incentives. It's stunning how often you will see non-economist politicians try to assert otherwise, try to say that somehow in some cases where it's convenient, people aren't going to respond to particular incentives. Drug addicts don't respond to prices kind of thing. Okay? But in fact, standard economics says that incentives matter. And a crucial set of constraints okay, are those from policy interventions. Okay? And so that's where the connection with libertarianism is going to come in. Okay? So what are some examples, just to be clear? Consumers are going to buy less of a good if a tax raises the price of a good. So taxes matter because they change relative prices. People have less, in effect, disposable income, and they're going to substitute away from the good whose price has gone up because of the tax. Firms are going to reconsider where they locate if the taxes on their profits are high in one state or one country relative to some other country. Okay? Firm decisions also respond to incentives because whatever the objective of the firm owners was, if you now say they have to pay more out in taxes, their ability to accomplish their goals, whatever those goals were, has changed, has been reduced, and so they're going to try to respond in some way, shape, or form. Think about the minimum wage as a classic example. All the lefty press on that says, well, we raise the minimum wage, all these minimum wage workers will have higher wages. And it just omits the second part of the analysis says, well, now the firms are making lower profits. And the firms probably don't like that. Indeed, you lefties are the ones who characterize the firms as all being concerned about nothing but profits. Well, then precisely, they're going to do something about the fact they have to pay minimum wages. They're going to hire fewer people or substitute machines for people or change the nature of their production process or pay people under the table or something. So the incentives will matter. Okay? Politicians, of course, respond to incentives as well. They may change their positions on issues if they think that public opinion has changed in that direction. A good recent example uh, seems to be marijuana legalization. The polling on marijuana legalization has certainly gone up and up and up, now shows a majority in favor in the US. And we've seen lots of changes in politicians' uh, attitudes. So just to illustrate this point that incentives matter, okay, 
in the policy affects incentive. This is something you've all probably seen before. It's the Laffer curve. So on the horizontal axis, it shows you possible tax rates a government could use. Okay, at the far left, it's zero. So then how much revenue does the government collect? Well, collect zero. You don't have a, you have a zero tax rate. What if the government imposes a 100% tax rate? The simplistic, non-economics-y sort of approach says, well, we'll collect all the income that's been generated because we'll just take it all. Okay? But any thoughtful view that thinks about incentives says, if you tax at 100% rate, people have no incentive to earn any income at all. They're either going to earn some and not report any of it and hide it from the government, or okay, they are going to uh, just stop working or move to some other country, as Gerard Depardieu did uh, when he left France because they raised their tax rate to 75% on millionaires. And so you're going to get zero tax revenue at a 100% tax rate. In between, okay, as you raise the tax rate from zero, you'll get some revenue. But at some point, these disincentives caused by taxes, both the evasion, avoidance, and et cetera, are kick in until you get to a point where you're losing tax revenue with a higher tax rate and eventually getting nothing. Okay, so the point of talking about economics is simply to say that incentives matter. And um, will somebody give me a like 30 minute and then a 15 minute heads up? Mark, can you just tell me when it's like 9.45 and 10? Thank you. Um, okay, so economics says incentives matter, and that raises the possibility of unintended consequences. Okay? Why do I talk about unintended consequences? Because, thank you. <laughs> what? Except I don't know what this is. I haven't seen one of these for a long time. <laughs> no, this is fine. <laughs> We went through this interesting change in the social norm where when people started having all their phones that had the time on them, and it was, but everybody still had watches, it was sort of rude to pull your cell phone out of your pocket to look at the time because people thought you were just checking your messages or you know, being too self-absorbed or whatever. But then as more and more people have not stopped bothering to carry a watch, it's like everybody does it now, so now it's okay, except it would be too kludgy up here. So I appreciate the watch. Okay. Um, Talk about unintended consequences because policies have stated objectives. Okay? Sometimes the stated objectives make a lot of sense. Sometimes they're noble. Sometimes they sound great. Okay? Sometimes not. Okay? Some policies, even if you sort of listen to the sort of language of the people proposing them, they still don't make any sense. But many certainly have plausible or defensible objectives. But whatever the stated objectives of policies, because incentives matter, those policies can change incentives in ways that the advocates neither wanted nor anticipated and change outcomes in ways that might be very significant compared to the intended or the stated uh, effects of the policy intervention. Okay? And that is, in essence, another way, the essence of the consequentialist view is to say that the treatment is frequently going to be worse than the disease. It's not saying there's no disease. So this perspective that I'm pushing is not saying markets work perfectly. Private arrangements do everything exactly right all the time. Sometimes they do pretty well. Sometimes maybe there are you know, non-trivial issues. Okay? But just as you don't have a doctor to do surgery all the time, okay, because the surgery might be worse than whatever it is that ails you, Okay? You shouldn't intervene in economies all the time, or necessarily, just because things aren't perfect, because the intervention could do far more harm than whatever the problem is you were trying to fix. So let me give you some examples of all of that. Okay? 
Endangered Species Act is one of my favorites. One implication of the Endangered Species Act that if you own land that might have an endangered species on it, say you have forest land, uh, wetlands, whatever, and if an endangered species is discovered on your land, the federal government's going to forbid you from developing that land, you face a clear incentive. Okay? Develop the land now. Cut all the trees down now and put up golf courses, parking lots, strip malls, whatever. Because then you get the value of the land now before the government has stolen it from you by forbidding you from developing that land because there might be an endangered species there. Soak the rich tax policies. They may or may not soak the rich, but they also might encourage productive people to hide more of their income, to go into other professions, to leave the country, to park their assets overseas, and all sorts of things like that. So even if you believe in the total righteousness of soaking the rich, you should recognize that it's not necessarily going to work as smoothly as you might think. Corporate income taxes we sort of talked about briefly when talking about location decisions. Lots of people on the left who want to redistribute more say we should be taxing corporations. Okay? They don't recognize that corporates, corporations are mobile. The owners can put the physical location, excuse me, the uh, ownership location overseas okay? or the plant overseas. Okay? And then the effect of taxing corporate income is going to be to hurt the workers domestically who now have no jobs okay, rather than the owners of the capital. So it actually could be a regressive policy rather than a progressive income tax policy. Minimum wages, rent controls, we just talked about sort of briefly. Rent controls, Milton Friedman once said, was the best way to destroy a city short of nuclear bombing because it creates an incentive for people not to keep up the rental apartments that they're, they're leasing out, for people not to build new rental apartments, okay, even though it may mean lower rent for some of the people who are lucky enough to get those policies. High stakes testing and accountability. Okay, this is a classic illustration of why I'm always nervous about compromises, even though, of course, libertarians should be willing to compromise in certain ways. But in many cases, the compromises are actually worse than the status quo. Accountability was meant to say, we want schools to be accountable. We want them to have to produce good results, or something bad will happen to them, and this will incentivize them. Okay, to do better. So we're going to make sure they give all these tests to all their students, okay, and then we're going to see what the scores of their students are, and the schools whose students have lousy scores then get punished, or they get fewer teachers, or they lose funding, or something like that. Sort of sounds like they're, in, they're drinking the consequentialist Kool-Aid, the incentives matter Kool-Aid. They're trying to incentivize these schools okay, in, to do something better. Okay? The problem is there are a zillion ways that schools can respond, so a zillion incentives created Okay, by the high stakes testing and accountability. So one thing you might do is make sure that your low test score students get categorized as being not English proficient, because then their scores don't go into the averages that are relevant for the accountability. Another incentive it creates, which has been documented as well, is that schools actually call parents of kids they think are going to score poorly and tell them to stay home on the day of the test. So their scores are not end up in the averages. Another thing that's been well documented is that some teachers okay, who were worried that their classrooms were going to score poorly, poorly actually took all the Scantron forms with all the little penciling in of the bubbles, okay, and they erased them and put the right answers in. Okay? So there is cheating, and there's other sorts of examples. So trying to fix bad government, public schools, with more government, government-created high-stakes testing and accountability, is a terrible idea. The right kind of accountability is parent and student accountability, where parents have vouchers or, or something so they can move with their feet, vote with their feet. Okay. Another example of unintended consequences. Cap and trade or carbon taxes. 
okay, may have okay, some desirable consequences in slowing warming, but it's going to have a bunch of other effects, particularly if the U.S. or the rich countries adopt carbon taxes okay, and the rest of the country, world doesn't, then a lot of more manufacturing is going to move to China and India, where what do they use to generate a lot of fuel? Coal, which is even dirtier than the fuels that are being used in the richer countries. So you may have, in fact, made the problem worse okay, rather than better, depending on how many countries you can get to sign on. Flood insurance subsidies encourage people to live in areas they shouldn't be living in because those places flood. There's, there's so much open space in the world. The notion that we had to build levees to create space in New Orleans okay, at great expense and clearly exposed at huge risk was just incredibly nutty. Okay? Why encourage people to live someplace where they're taking a big risk? The minimum legal drinking age of 21, okay? obviously honored far, far more in the breach than in the observance or anybody who's ever been on a college campus can attest. Okay? And okay, it encourages people to drink heavily okay, when they do get access to alcohol by to some degree limiting their access and therefore maybe contributing to binge drinking. Okay? Uh, the estate tax is a full employment act for lawyers and accountants. It may or may not change the distribution of income very much, okay, but it certainly causes more people to move to Florida or New Hampshire where they don't have estate taxes, uh, state estate taxes. It causes people to set up trust that avoid most of the impact. So again, lots of unintended consequences. Um, a super important one is the Food and Drug Administration, which tests all new medicines for safety and efficacy in order to prevent bad drugs with really bad side effects from getting on the market. It sounds like a good goal. It sounds like everybody should be in favor, except it's pretty likely, based on available evidence, that the FDA kills. How could that be? Okay. Not because it isn't catching any potentially bad drugs. It is sometimes, okay. and that's fine. But it's also causing way more delay than would occur in the private sector okay, of all the drugs which it ends up approving but only after five or 10 years. So all the benefit to the people who could take those drugs okay, doesn't occur during that extra delay. And estimates that economists done suggest that on net, the FDA is making health worse off okay, rather than better off. Wage and price controls, it's an interesting example because of how dramatic the unintended consequences were. Okay, because of wage and price controls, firms started offering what to their em employees to compensate them? Health insurance. Okay, so the reason that health insurance is part of your employment contract, the reason it's not taxed and all that, goes back to a misguided policy from World War II consisting of wage and price controls. Okay, so now let me just give you a few examples. So far I just talked about some unintended consequences. What I said about the policies on the previous slide does not by itself mean those policies are ill-advised. Okay, when you go get surgery or you go to the doctor for any procedure or you take any medicine, they all may have undesired side effects. You can think of as unintended consequences. This doesn't mean you shouldn't have taken them. You may be better off for doing that. So maybe some of those policies on net are beneficial. I don't think that, but you would need more analysis to come to that conclusion. But let me talk about a few examples to illustrate of the consequentialist approach. And each of these is chosen to sort of give uh, various flavors of the different um, aspects of consequentialism. So drug prohibition is pretty easy. I'm sure everybody's pretty familiar with it. The standard argument is simply that if we look at the consequences of outlawing drugs, we get a huge number that are much worse than we get okay, from legal drugs. Legal drugs do generate some adverse things. Some people misuse them and cause harm to themselves. Some people misuse them and harm others, such as driving under the influence. But 
Okay? If we outlaw them, we generate tons of violence because of the trade is now underground. We generate corruption. We generate all this not just in our own country, but in the rest of the world by enforcing drug prohibition there. We infringe civil liberties. We exacerbate racial tensions. We make it harder for people with legitimate medical needs to get access to the drugs, uh, and so on and so forth. So unless you think that reducing drug use is so important and that prohibition is so effective in doing it okay, that it's worth all these neg other negatives, okay, anyone should be led naturally to the view that prohibition is worse than the disease. Perhaps some moderate policy, like a modest syntax that just gently nudge less drug use, you could defend on consequentialist grounds, but prohibition, absolutely not. The Iraq invasion. So that one's up there because that was one that, to some degree, libertarians struggled with back in, when it first came up in 2002 or three, because libertarians certainly defend the, ability, the right of the government to use force okay, in self-defense, or of anyone to use sort of force in self-defense. So why wasn't our invasion of Iraq a legitimate thing to do because we were worried about Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction? Well, if you say it just in those terms, it's a little bit hard come to a super firm conclusion or to convince anyone, but now think about it in terms of the consequences. One, we should have recognized that we had no idea whether he had weapons of mass destruction. Okay? The information that was provided was incredibly exaggerated and misleading. Second, we should have recognized that while maybe the Iraqis would greet us with open arms and all of a sudden there'd be democracy and that democracy would spread to the rest of the Middle East and all would be you know, peace and light, the history of invasions for millennia is that that's not what happens and that what we observe with the sectarian violence and all the other stuff is exactly what's happened in many other instances. And so any reasonable calculation of the likely range of possibilities would have said, maybe he has those weapons, maybe he doesn't. If he has them, he doesn't actually have that much incentive to try to use them against us. Because the second he uses them against us, then we're going to nuke him into oblivion. So his incentive was not strong. Okay? And even if he does, and even if he might be tempted, we're going to incur huge cost in trying to prevent that. So the invasion was a bad idea. And the continued occupation is a bad idea. Gay marriage is on the list because it's a good example of how useful it can be to go back to very, very first principles. Okay? The way, to me at least, to think clearly about gay marriage was to say, why is government in the marriage business in the first place? Okay? If you take as given that government's in the marriage business, and then you have to argue whether uh, it should be provided to same-sex couples as well as opposite-sex couples, there are some things that you know, people can raise which maybe are not trivial to, to deal with until you first say, why are we doing it at all? If you realize that private contracting could handle, could create marriages for those people who want them, that default rules about division of property, about inheritance, about guardianship of children, already exist. Okay? If two people happen not to be married and they conceive a child, there are rules already in place to cover those situations that say who are the legal guardians and who's not. So you don't need the marriage contract at all. There was never any good reason for the government to be in that business. Then it's very easy to say, well, okay, maybe for some reason that particular combination of contracts that's called a marriage is easy, simple, and it's nice for the government to provide it. But then what you say is government is providing a service. It's doing something active to help out some of its citizens, but not others. How can that make any sense? How can it exclude its contract enforcement services only to opposite-sex couples 
And so then the case for gay marriage becomes completely transparent. So going back to first principles, okay, you'll see in some other examples, is always super useful when you're talking, uh, trying to convince people about this policy versus that. Just go back and say, should there be any intervention at all? Exactly why is there one? It's helpful. Abortion I put up because that's a case where Libertarians do not have a unanimous view, either individually or in terms of what they would advocate for policy. There's a broad range. I don't even really remember ever seeing data on what the tendencies are. My casual impression is it's probably more pro-choice than pro-life, but I really don't know. Okay? But if you think about it only in terms of rights, I would say it's a little bit awkward to think about because we would have to define the rights of the fetus versus the rights of the mother. We don't know whether a fetus is exactly a life or not, or what point it should be treated as a life or not. If you think of it in consequential terms, then you can say, well, we're not analyzing the, the merits of abortion per se. We're analyzing the merits of a policy that attempts to restrict abortion. Okay, so what would that be? Well, to take an extreme example, it would be a policy that locks up both doctor and mother for, either, for receiving and performing an abortion. Okay, and if you think about it that way, then that gives you the basis to say, do I think that's a good policy? What would happen if we impose such a policy? Would society ever consistently impose such a policy? So the consequentialist perspective may not still tell you the answer, but it gives you a framework to think about how you feel about abortion and to think about whether you want it to be a federal policy or a state policy. Um, health insurance I put up here because that's a case where, for libertarians, the ship has totally sailed. Okay? Almost everybody thinks healthcare is a right. It's almost impossible to convince anyone that we shouldn't be giving everyone free, state-of-the-art healthcare, that any limitation on anybody's access to care okay, is just sort of Neanderthal-ish, except okay, that some of those people still pay some attention to costs. Okay? So think, if we think about it consequentially, we say that, yes, giving this health care to various people is providing them a benefit, but it's coming at huge cost, and there's more and more evidence that allows you to document that the costs are big and growing and are going to bankrupt the economy if something doesn't change fairly soon and in a sizable way. Being a consequentialist also allows you to look at a ton of experiments about how much people benefit from getting more health care. Now, it's a sort of puzzling result, but it's an incredibly consistent result for decades. Giving people free insurance, giving them free health care, doesn't seem to improve their health. Okay? Now, that's weird, but it's well enough documented that it's relevant to the conversation. So thinking like a consequentialist helps you get someplace on being able to talk to people rationally about uh, health insurance, not to non-libertarians about health insurance. Discrimination policies I put up there because that's also sort of a hard one okay, for uh, libertarians. Okay? Why? Because you, of course, make lots of enemies. You sound like you're quite evil if you say that it should be perfectly legal for an employer to discriminate against someone for being black, for being female, for being gay, or for whatever reason. And the libertarian view overall is that such policies are not the business of the government, okay? that there should be freedom of contract. Employers should be able to hire or fire whomever they wish for whatever reasons they wish, subject only to whatever contract they may have signed with perspective with the people they employ. Okay? But thinking about it consequentially, again, gives you the basis to say, what are the effects of these employment discrimination bans? To talk about how they lead inevitably to affirmative action, to talk about the costs of affirmative action, and to therefore have a conversation, including one of which is that some firms seem to systematically hire fewer people in the protected classes 
or not hire people in the protected classes to make sure that they never get sued for firing anyone in the protected classes. To make, make sure you don't ever get sued under the American with Disabilities Act is to never hire anyone with a disability. Okay? And that has been documented in the literature as well. So the consequentialist perspective okay, allows you to talk about that in at least a way that might get people who don't agree with us uh, to pay some attention. Um, okay, so I'm about 20 minutes left. I'm going to say a few more things and then open it up to questions. Another thing to say about the consequentialist approach is that it's useful for being able to rank policies, to say which policies are really bad, which policies are sort of bad, which policies are only sort of minimally bad, at least in and of themselves. So the consequentialist approach can easily suggest degrees of libertarian opposition, degrees of problems with drug prohibition versus a moderate syntax. Prohibition creates black markets and has all the negative things we talked about. A moderate syntax, such as the US has for alcohol, may or may not be doing any good. I suspect on net it's doing more harm than good. But it's not doing any terrible harms of creating all this violence in the inner city and things like that, because it's just raising the price a modest amount. So people who use alcohol responsibly are being punished. People who might be incentivized, who might be irresponsible and are disincentivized to consume quite as much alcohol, maybe there's some small improvement there. But at least you can talk about that and explain to people why a moderate syntax, if you're going to intervene at all, is way better than prohibition. Libertarians are not generally in favor of any kind of welfare state, but a very stingy welfare state is a lot better than a generous welfare state. If we were guaranteeing a $50 a year uh, income under a negative income tax to every person in the country, would libertarians have proposed that policy or endorsed that policy? I don't think so. But would you get all super exercised about that? Probably not. And in particular, would you think that it was way better than current policy? Of course, because the distortions and the taxation necessary to support that would be minuscule compared uh, to the current system. Okay? So the consequential approach makes it very easy to do compromises if you're careful to say compromises are in the direction of less intervention, less government. Okay? The cost-benefit naturally gives rise to that approach. Sometimes the philosophical approach, or at least the way some people present it, doesn't as naturally address those sort of degrees okay? because it tends to say any policy infringes rights, okay? and therefore every policy is invalid. And it's a little harder to say that some policies are more or less invalid than others because they all infringe rights. Now, of course, you can still try to talk about degrees. But when you do that, you're going to end up starting to talk about consequences, which puts it back somewhat uh, in the other framework. Okay? So one reason to think about consequential libertarianism, one thing to recognize about it is it's useful for thinking about which policies are really bad, which policies are only sort of bad. I think it's also useful for thinking about um, some difficult cases, okay? some policy areas where libertarians are either confused or we have a hard time or there's some reason why we have a, it's not easy even for us to formulate exactly what we think. So one is monetary policy. Why is monetary policy hard? Well, I would argue that when you think about it consequentially, you realize the following. As long as there's some government, okay, we're not in anarchy, we're in libertarian land. So government's really small, 1795. Okay? But it's not zero. Okay? So that means the government is collecting some taxes and it's making some payments. It's got to do that with some medium of exchange. Now, it could decide its medium of exchange is sacks of potatoes or gold coins or fiat money or whatever, but it's got to choose something. Once it chooses something, that's going to end up being the default 
backing the standard for every other kind of currency, money, means of payment in the economy. So government can't be entirely out of the monetary system. By the nature of being the government, it's inevitably partially defining the monetary system. So with that perspective, then the arguments about gold versus fiat money versus central bank, they get much messier because any system that tries to constrain the government to not misbehave with respect to money is subject to abuse because the government is always defining that monetary system. So if the government is on a gold standard, government can suspend the gold standard, as zillions of economies on gold standards have done throughout history. Okay? And in many cases, great harm was done okay, when governments that had abandoned gold standards tried to get back on those gold standards at pre-existing parities okay, and had to really crunch their, crush their economies to do that, to bring the price levels down. So a consequentialist perspective would say, as libertarians, we shouldn't be that positive that we know anything about monetary policy because the science, except that it's social science, it's not real science, but the science is really messy. It's hard. Nobody really knows the right answers. So we should certainly nudge back against some of the crazy things that central banks do and criticize a lot of what happens in the monetary area. But we should, it's an area where we should have some humility ourselves because we don't have perfect answers either. Okay? Climate policy... I think is useful to think about because as libertarians, we don't know so much about science, this climate science. What we think about is policy, but that allows us to engage in this debate in a really constructive way, even if we take all the scientific assertions as given. Because we can say, let's accept all your projections, and then let's ask whether the policies that you're proposing are actually going to be helpful, even if we believe all of your assumed scientific models and all your projections about the gloom and doom. So there's a bunch of interesting examples that just you know, came across my screen recently. One set of researchers in um, uh, Dartmouth and a couple other places looked at what the optimal subsidy should be for electric cars. Okay? It's currently about $7,500 a car. So if you buy an electric car or hybrid, you get $7,500 tax credit. Okay? They said, you know, something doesn't feel quite right because if you have a car and it's powered by electricity or partially by electricity instead of by gas, you're using just as much energy. You're just generating that energy from a different source. You're generating it from coal or natural gas or oil rather than from gasoline. Okay? So in particular, in some parts of the country that are mainly relying on coal to generate electricity, you could be putting a lot more emissions into the atmosphere okay, by buying an electric car than by driving a standard gasoline-powered car. So they calculate the state by state. They show that there's huge divergence across states. And in their calculations, the net implied subsidy for buying an electric car okay, is, in fact, a subsidy in some parts of the country. And it's a huge tax in other parts of the country because those parts rely on coal. And on average, they find that we should be taxing electric vehicles at something like $750 a vehicle instead of subsidizing at $7,500 a vehicle. So being consequent, just being economists provides for this incredibly useful critique, this compelling critique of a policy that everybody thinks is going to save the planet, which in fact is making the planet worse okay, rather than better. Okay. A different example, economist who was the chief energy economist for the Obama administration during the last several years. Okay, went to MIT for his PhD, he's taught at MIT, he's taught at Chicago, he's like a very, very super serious, well-respected guy. He's a hardcore Democrat liberal, but he's a good economist. He analyzed the federal government's uh, weatherization program that paid people to, um, excuse me, to 
buy more insulation, get better screen doors and things to make their house more weatherproof. And the federal government was promising people that they would save money okay, by doing so, even though there were upfront costs, they'd save enough in energy use going forward over the life of their house or whatever, okay, that it was worth it. So they analyzed this using standard economics. They said, A, that was a lie. Okay? <laughs> There's no way you save enough energy in future to justify the upfront costs. And B, even if you take account of some marginal social cost of carbon, okay, that so you may be reducing emissions, okay, even though you get a small energy saving, you get some, and we take account of that effect on global warming, the policy still doesn't make sense. Okay? So that, again, is a way that using consequentialist approach, economists can be very involved in the climate policy debate, even if we have to sort of seed. We don't know exactly what to say about uh, all of the climate science issues. Um, I talked about employment discrimination a little. Let me just talk about financial regulation for a second. That's an interesting case because it is really difficult for us to get involved now because it's so incredibly messy. For, given where we are and the way that the financial markets are regulated, there are many things we could do which would be in the direction of less regulation that could end up making things worse because there's so many different policies involved that you can't be sure what the interactions were going to be in all the policies. And so the only really thoughtful and consistent view, which doesn't sound thoughtful to our opponents, is to repeal all the financial regulation. Okay? But we know that's incredibly unlikely to happen. Still, it allows you to go in and point out how all of these attempted fixes are similar, like Dodd-Frank, are similar to earlier proposed fixes, okay, which didn't work, and we're just doing the same thing of adding on more and more levels of regulation, which are unlikely uh, to ever have any effect. Okay, so I'm going to wrap up uh, for now in a, just a few more thoughts, um, and we'll pick it up this afternoon. Consequential libertarian approach says choose policies based on their consequences. At some level, everyone agrees with that, yet there's wide difference over what policies should be. Why? For two reasons. Different assessment of the consequences, which is always going to be the case. We'll never eliminate that entirely. And also different weighting of the consequences because of different values. What I'm going to do this afternoon is argue two things. First of all, that in much more detail, that the consequences are just generally bad, not just the unintended consequences, but policies typically don't do what they're supposed to do, and they typically do all these other bad things in addition, and talk about that in more detail. And then, okay, most importantly, argue that agreeing on the value system we use to evaluate the consequences is not that crucial. Okay? Argue that whether you think policy should be based on discussions of economic efficiency, like maximizing GDP, or based on maximizing liberty, or based on some notion of equity, whichever one of those you think is right, um, small government uh, is still the best. Okay? So that's it for, for today. Thank you very much. I'm happy to take questions for the while. I think we ask you to go to the mics. Yeah, great. Hi. You know, it's, um, I enjoyed your talks last summer in uh, San Diego, and uh, in watching this, I've been a fan for many years, and a lot of our audience is of, of an age that uh, they don't go back to 69 with the publication of a book entitled The Peter Principle by Lawrence J. Peter. Uh -huh. And uh, I've, um, you know, it, it has an interesting history. As I watch your talk, uh, I reflect back on that book 
uh, are you familiar with the Peter Principle? I'm familiar with the Peter Principle. For anyone who's not, it just and, says and people uh, rise if, to if, their if think, level uh, of incompetence. They keep getting right. promoted until right. they're eventually in a job that they're now no right. longer able to do. Now, the other thing I would ask about that is um, that I would encourage every attendee to buy a copy of the book and not only know the Peter Principle itself, but to read the book with all the nomenclatures. It's a very simple one, two, three-hour read. But everything that you've talked here and, and the rest of the, the course, I'm sure will parallel last summer. But uh, I, again, I reflect back on the content of that book and you know it, it's all reflected in your talk here. The name of the book again is The Peter Principle, Alarnche Peter. And uh, uh, it's, uh, as I watch these talks, I reflect on it a lot. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I had a question about the kind of level of generality. Uh, imagine if you like focused on whether we should ban heroin and come out to say, okay, it's okay to ban heroin. But if we look at the larger, should government be banning drugs at all, we say, no, it shouldn't in general, uh, that the balance goes the other way. Uh, what should we do with those kind of different conflicting um, outcomes at different kind of levels of generality? So I guess in that particular case, at least, I don't think we come to differing outcomes, because I don't think we'd ever come to the conclusion that we should ban heroin. Um, I think very broadly, there are only a teeny number of things that you can argue convincingly we should outright ban. Murder, you know, theft, arson, things like that. For things where we might have concerns that people are misusing them to their own detriment, we might have concerns that people use them in a way which harm others, like driving on influence, there may be a cause for some kind of interventions, like DUI laws, maybe subsidized treatment, maybe moderate syntaxes. But I don't think the bans ever are likely to have a better ratio of benefit to cost. Uh, sorry, over here. If taxation by force should still exist, how do you stop the government from growing, especially being that the government has military? So the question of how you stop the government from growing is, a, is an incredibly important question. So one thing that's very frustrating for libertarians is we had a pretty libertarian government in 1790, and you thought we had a constitution which, if read the way people in this building would read it, would have kept us with a very, very small government, okay? but it hasn't. Um, so yes, there seems to be fun, something fundamental that pressures for more government. And so libertarians basically have a lifelong, a you know, forever long task of constantly trying to remind people of the negatives so that we can keep it smaller than it otherwise would be. The hope that we're going to get it back to 1790 is, you know, is pretty infinitesimal, but it could be a lot worse. It could be you know, North Korea or Cuba, or communist Cuba or whatever. Okay? We could be France instead of being the US. There are significant differences across those two countries. So. Um, people like solutions, but the libertarian answer, especially the consequentialist answer, says there's not a solution. There's policy, there's outcome A if you don't intervene, and there's set of outcomes B if you do intervene, and both of them are bad. But one is worse than the other, so we should go with the one that's less bad. Most people want there to be option C, everything is wonderful. It just doesn't exist. I mean, you go to your doctor. You can go to your doctor and say, give me a pill that makes me live forever. And he says, no, I can recommend that some things will get you to 75 instead of 70, but those are the only choices. So we just have to keep arguing, keep debating, and keep fighting. Um, there are always going to be people who disagree and push the other direction, and we push back. 
you're assuming if you get rid of all these agencies, that the, the alphabet soup, that people will do the right thing. Has that ever been proven to be the case? Well, proven is a very hard standard, but I would say there's tons of examples of private mechanisms that substitute for what things that these agencies are meant to do. So we talked a little bit about the FDA. In the absence of an FDA guaranteeing the safety of these medications, okay, you would have doctors who would try not to prescribe bad drugs to their patients because that's not good for business, and obviously most doctors care about their patients and don't want to, to harm them. You would have insurance companies who would want to monitor which medicines they would reimburse for. You have a tort liability system that allows people to sue manufacturers uh, if a medicine turns out to have side effects that were not reasonably anticipated and, uh, were, were, or were fraudulent or things like that. So there's lots of examples of that that happen all the time. Um, there's countries that don't have some of those agencies where the outcomes related to what that agency is supposed to do are a little different, if not better. And I think that the outcomes in many cases are worse because of those agencies. I think they enable people to think the government has taken care of this. I don't have to worry about the securities that I'm buying for my financial portfolio because the SEC has told me that securities markets are safe. Okay? Didn't help all the people okay, who bought from Bernie Madoff. Okay? He was doing everything consistent with okay, the rules, except that he was lying, and the SEC didn't catch it. It didn't catch it, even though it was warned about him for almost a decade before it eventually came to light. Okay? They weren't using their brains and recognizing that something that sounded too good to be true probably wasn't true. In particular, he was promising, he was, you know, on paper, was awarding his customers returns that were both high, higher than, say, the S&P 500 averages, and exactly the same every month. <laughs> Who could possibly believe that that was real. Anybody with any thought, and if more people had said, no, there's no SEC, there's no protections, I have to think for myself, fewer of them would have been snared by things like Bernie Madoff. Uh, over here. Um, today we have access to more information easier than ever before, and yet it seems that people in general know less than ever before. Um, I've been very, very frustrated when trying to argue um, a, a particular issue, regardless of what it is, um, it seems that some people are so dogmatic, and especially progressives, I'm not saying it doesn't happen on the right, but, <laughs> but especially progressives, that they do not listen to reason, they do not listen to facts, or they make up facts that they can't substantiate, um, and they seem to lack any common sense. Um, the social justice part seems to matter more than anything you've said here today. Is there a way to at least try to start those people with that point of view to thinking a little bit? I don't know. My hunch is that um, the, the, the people who are dogmatic on the right and the left, indeed the people who are libertarian dogmatic, are very hard to reach. I think more of reaching the people, some degree younger people, who haven't made up their minds as much yet, um, and who are still confused or still thinking or still somewhere in the middle. I think we have a much better chance of persuading some of them. And we're never going to persuade a majority or everybody or anything like that. But it only takes persuading a few percent in many issues and many elections to tilt the balance okay, so that we maybe enter tilt enough politicians to think that people care about, say, legalizing marijuana, that more of them will at least get out of the way when it's being proposed. So, uh, I don't think the goal is so insurmountable because we don't have to convince everyone. 
I don't tend to worry about the Paul Krugmans. I'm, we're never going to convince Paul Krugman. <laughs> and the people who love to read Paul Krugman. They're, that's for them, that's like going, that's what, they're breaking bad is listening to Paul Krugman. So. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. Economists were increasing their technical sophistication dramatically over the whole period where government expenditure is increasing, particularly with general equilibrium and econometrics, which are used in the cost-benefit analyses. In fact, the way economic theory is structured, a policy debate only rises when there's a market failure, and from there, economists made successful careers out of making up new market failures. This is not to mention that big government is a full employment act for economists. Do these things make you at all suspicious of relying on cost-benefit analysis for justifying libertarianism? And does it make you doubt whether academic economists could ever help us shrink the government? Do you ever think about whether maybe looking at cost-benefit analysis and other advanced models actually got us into this mess? Um, short answer to that is no. I think I, have a <laughs> I, mean, I didn't mean that to be a joke. I'm saying overall I have a different perspective on that. I totally agree that there is excessive reliance on theoretical models and excessive reliance on econometrics okay, by many economists. Um, and it's leading to just bad economics. A huge fraction of that, to me, uninteresting economics is just not about policy at all. It's completely orthogonal. In the policy world, people are tending to use less whiz-bang techniques and less sophisticated things. The two examples I gave about energy, about climate change, those were done by lefty economists using standard techniques, not super whiz-bang, but standard techniques. And they looked at the data, and because they were honest economists, they came to a conclusion that was different than what their political hunches sort of might have led them to. I mean, academic economists are not going to be libertarian-leaning on average. They are clearly not. Okay? The Harvard department kind of maybe the, believe it or not, maybe the most libertarian department in the country, there's, there's 10 to 15 people, I'd say, are seriously libertarian-leaning. Okay? And yet, you know, they produce mainly pro-government stuff. That's the nature of the incentives. You can't get published by writing yet another article that says free markets are good. Been there, done that. Milton Friedman took care of that. And Adam Smith took care of that a long time ago. You get brownie points for doing the clever stuff. So it's up to people to ask these questions about the consequences, which doesn't mean using sophisticated economics, just means consistently saying, what's going to happen if we do this policy? And so that's my reaction. OK. Yes. Uh, do you, when you look at the court finding last year or the year before that said even a terminal patient could not use an experimental drug, were you surprised by that? I wasn't surprised. I was appalled, but I wasn't surprised. I just think that's the nature of bureaucracies. They have faced much bigger risks from allowing something like that to happen and having it go wrong than they face from saying no, and then there's no vis as, not as visible an adverse effect. Last question. Do you find it oxymoronic that in one room in a hospital uh, we're trying to save a 25-week baby and in another room... We're aborting in a and I'm not saying I'm in favor of one or the other, but how can a society accept both of things, both of those aspects? Well, if the people who are who are getting the having a 25 month old that's being saved, their insurance, 25 week, their sorry. insurance or their money is paying for it. Well, I'm certainly never going to interfere with any individual's right to spend their money to try to help their pre you know preborn uh, preterm child. But um, so I don't, and I certainly think that. 
different people are different. The right decision is different for different people. So no, I don't necessarily find it okay. too troubling. Thank you. I think there are a few announcements. Do you want me to do these? Um, so I am asked to tell you that books and t-shirts will be for sale at the tables in the auditorium foyer during the breaks. We now have a quick break. Refreshments are in the Winter Garden, which is just back past the elevators. Uh, next session begins promptly at 10.42 and 38 seconds. 10.45. 10.45. And there are first four restrooms that are just uh, before you get to the elevators. Thank you very much. Thank you.